Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 211, Heaven Smiles, Earth Rejoices. Before I start, let me say thank you to all of you who comment and review me on iTunes. iTunes remains of course the biggest single marketplace for podcasts, which for some reason I find mildly annoying, but also am mildly grateful. Anyway, I always look in a slightly sad and pathetic way at the reviews and hug them to me in the cold winter nights for warmth. And then I saw one from somebody called Paulie. Now Paulie says that he or she would, and I quote, I would happily sell my house and all its contents to support this podcast. Paulie, we need to talk. Another person who sent me a message was Bruce, who was horrified that I'd callously and idly, basically, abandoned Ladybird. So he sent me a screenshot of the new version of Henry VIII. The super summary of the verdict is this sentence. Henry was a willful, powerful man who changed the course of English history to get what he wanted and killed those who displeased him. Which is no more than fair. I was so ashamed when Bruce got in touch with me, I went and brought the old one too from 1968. Now that is rather more positive, though the picture, well, not the best makes it look as though Henry's had a visit to a tanning centre which went terribly wrong. In 1968, the verdict was this. Henry VIII was the right kind of king needed by England at the beginning of the 16th century. He was strong and ruthless, but he was also clever and determined that England should be powerful and prosperous. Well, that's lovely, isn't it? I have to say that I think the more recent judgment perfectly positive enough for my tastes Not sure I can go as far as 1968, man. Anyway, welcome back everyone to the narrative of the history of England. 
after a period of digression into foreign parts and the opinions about Henry VIII. Just to make sure we're all on the same page, singing from the same hymn sheet, are bound together in brotherly and sisterly fellowship as we march arm in arm towards the bright golden sun of the reign of the new king, let's briefly recap where we are. Henry VII, dead as a nail. King's mum, Henry's counsellor, all in agreement. Scapegoats needed. Emsom and Dudley duly banged up. New king announced to the world. Now, I know that we talked about all the various opinions of Henry last time, and a far from positive story it is. But let us put that to one side. Let us take off the 2020 glasses from our collective nose and try to see the new king as contemporaries saw him. It is traditional, actually, for everyone to greet the new king with great enthusiasm and the dawning of a new age, so the fact that everyone greeted Henry in this way could just be seen as the same old, same old. But there does seem to be something especially hearty in this collective relief. The old king had been so utterly in control. His servants had been so utterly predatory. The poor old nobility had been so horribly battered down like a cod fillet on a Saturday night in Scarborough. Thank the Lord for that. There's a quote that gets rolled out in pretty much every history book I've read on Henry VIII from a chap called William Blunt, Lord Mountjoy. It would be churlish of me not to do the same. My honourable members will know all of this already, I have to say, though may be surprised that I've suddenly decided to pronounce Blunt correctly as I failed to do all the way through my otherwise in every way estimable Shedcast episode on Blunt, Henry VIII, his education and the introduction of humanism into England. Anyway, here it is, this much-repeated quote. Heaven smiles, earth rejoices, all is milk and honey and nectar. Tight-fistedness is well and truly banished. Generosity scatters wealth with an unstinting hand. So from that, I think, we can take it that Mountjoy's a fan. And he was not alone in his enthusiasm. When his father died, Henry was just a couple of months shy of his 18th birthday. So he's young, possibly ginger, healthy. Unlike his brother Arthur, he's physically big, robust, energetic, boisterous. He was unusually tall, in fact, six foot three inches, powerfully built, well-made, attractive and impressive to all he met. This intense physicality was part and parcel of his education, the education of a prince and the education of any of the nobility. Here, his master of axes, one Thomas Simpson, was the prince's guide. Under Simpson... Henry had learned to hawk, to ride, to shoot with the bow and bear arms. At all of these, Henry excelled. He was a nutter for the hunt, the original sport of kings, after all, rising early in the morning and staying out till after dark. Hunting required riding and running for hours. One poor courtier later reflected how difficult Henry's companions found it to keep up with him, saying that Henry, quote, made a martyrdom of the hunt. Henry famously loved the game of tennis, and actually in this he took after his father, who took it up at the age of 37 and loved it. Now the game was four square in the centre of the approved courtly sports. One Italian book by a chap called Baldassare Castiglione, The Art of the Courtier, which was very, very influential, described tennis as a noble sport, ideal for courtly elegance perfectly designed for the courtier to show shows how well he is built physically, how quick and agile he is in every member. An observer of Henry playing wrote enthusiastically, it was the prettiest thing in the world to see him play. 
Henry was a keen wrestler, something he was to regret deeply when he came up against Francis I of France. He was also a superb horseman. He was a singer and a musician. He loved to sing. He played the lute expertly and also played the pipes. He composed music and ballads. I have previously regaled you on pastime with good company. Famously, of course, and I'm sure I've said this before, Henry thirsted for the joust and his dad had held him back, allowing him only to run at the ring. He was going to put that right as soon as he could. So, here we have a picture of a young man who absolutely revelled in the physical world. There's a later story, rather horrid, that when ambassadors came to visit for an audience, Henry would like to have a footstool put in front of him, and he'd put his stocking leg on the stool and flex it while the conversation went on. He revelled in his physical prowess and presence, then he was very aware of it. He was, dare I say it, something of a show-off. This little story does tell us a lot about Henry, doesn't it? I mean, as a courtier, standing around watching such a display, you'd metaphorically hold your head in your hands and howl, dipstick, wouldn't you? You'd burn with embarrassment on his behalf, would you not? Obviously, not a hint of this internal turmoil would touch your face. Let us leaven the bread of this sort of animal story by a brief restatement of his cerebral education to boot. Henry had received the very best of the new learning, His education, led by Mountjoy and Thomas More and the early proponents of the new learning in England, had been of the very best and most modern. And it's clear that Henry had been good material. He'd taken to all of this. he learned Latin, Greek, French. He knew his rhetoric. He knew his Cicero. He knew the teachings of the Church Fathers as well. There is something of a difference of opinion amongst historians about the quality of Henry's intelligence. Some of those quotes last week definitely put Henry into the second-rate mind level. It's difficult to know. But if so, it was certainly not for a lack of education, and at the time most people would have disagreed with such a view. Henry is the first king since Alfred to be an author in the tract he wrote, admittedly with help, to refute Luther. The tract that, with deep, deep irony, earned him the title from the Pope of Defender of the Faith. When it came to his great matter and the argument with the Pope over the points of theology on which the divorce relied, he was determined to go through the argument the hard way, rather than getting out on the technicalities that the papal legate, Thomas Wolsey, suggested. Henry himself gloried in his knowledge as much as he gloried in his physical skills. He was proud of both. Whatever Henry's faults, he does not strike me as Mr Thickey. As we'll come back to, he was both self-indulgent, unself-disciplined and a bit idle. And so this doesn't help his reputation for intelligence. There's the famous story that he complained to Wolsey that he found writing painful and so urged him not to make him write stuff. That doesn't help his reputation. I suppose the thing is, though, that he was not not exactly lazy, but if there was to be a competition between a hunt or a feast and a bit of fun and doing some work or some writing, we knew exactly which would win. Unlike the vast majority of 18-year-olds, of course. Hmm? But Wolsey would find out to his cost, and indeed many others, that when he wanted to, Henry actually had a very fine eye for detail, when he was engaged and interested in the subject matter. Wolsey got used to passing things by Henry's nose and getting it rubber-stamped, and then sometimes he found himself shredded. Henry had a talent for seeing the weak spots in an argument, the casual ruthlessness in ripping the argument to shreds and exposing the arguer and the vulnerability and lack of self-confidence to want to swagger and gloat in his victory before his court. 
so it did not pay, then and now, to underestimate Henry's mental skills. There was one shortcoming in Henry's education, though. His formal education was carried on well beyond the normal time, well into the time when young men born to be king, like Edward V or Arthur, would have been focused on something much more vocational. Estate management, the business of governance. Henry never quite got over that lack of a practical apprenticeship in the business of governance because he'd never been expected to be king. And his personal laziness and preference for the physical world didn't help him catch up. This is critical, especially for the early years, so let's make a big thing of it now. So pay attention there at the back. Henry had other fish to fry, other ways to spend his time than his father had. He would not. Repeat not. Be personally reviewing and signing off account books. Even the mention of the word accounts could well send him into a coma. He shared with his dad the love of tennis and running his hands through strong boxes full of silver coins, but not picking up the treasurer on one shilling, five pence he spelt on silk stockings over the last 18 months. That would be too much detail. Life was too short for that sort of thing. Henry was in the main a big picture man. And who is to say that this is not perfectly sensible? Kings, CEOs are surely supposed to be about the big strategy rather than double-entry bookkeeping. So what was this big picture then that Henry brought with him? Again, we mentioned this a bit last week, that Henry was the most medieval of princes. His fervent hope and desire was to relive the glory days of Henry V, to take the war to the ancient enemies of England, France, and potentially Scotland, though there was little glory to be had fighting Scotland, France. That was the big one. His head was stuffed full of mort d'artour and the world of chivalry, seriously stuffed with it. Somebody had pushed chivalry so hard into his brain that if some of his brain was probably dribbling out of the other ear, it explained a lot of it was. Henry's trousers were practically exploding with the desire to dress up in brightly coloured clothing, hop around like an idiot and run around in full battle dress. Now, as a dry, wizened, old 53-year-old, I can happily tut and roll my eyes and wring my hands at the profligacy and the shallowness of all of this. Like the northern humanists, the Moors, Collets, Erasmuses of this world, I could earnestly expound the virtues of peace and the responsibility of the prince to bring peace and prosperity to his people. But if I did so, or if I had done so at the time, I would have been in the minority and the small minority. The vast majority just revelled in the fact that here they had a good-looking, athletic young king, well-educated, with all the right instincts for a king. Even more celebrated his arrival. No longer would the nobility be oppressed or the merchants deterred by taxes. People could once more take pride in their possessions without worrying that the government would come and take it off them. The world would no longer be crawling with informers. Now, one of the constant debates about Henry is where he starts and his ministers stop. Are the main decisions of the realm his? Or are they basically taken by ministers with only an airy wave of whatevs from the king before he swung himself onto a horse or onto some fresh-faced lady-in-waiting? These questions start early, right from the start in the very first council meeting. We can visualise it in that first one just before the death had been announced of the king with the old king's councillors, especially Bishop Richard Fox, Archbishop of Canterbury, William Warham, Thomas Lovell and the Queen Mum, Margaret Beaufort, grave-faced and serious with the young king. By this stage, Margaret was pretty much 76 years old and increasingly frail, but you have to bet her iron will kept her close to the forefront of this discussion. On this occasion... 
the decision to take Empsom and Dudley down, and for Henry to park himself in the tower while any potential disturbances resolve themselves, could well be the decisions of the king's old guard rather than Henry himself. But let's not absolve Henry from blame either. Although Margaret and the council were very probably responsible for the indictment of Empson Dud and responsible for taking the initial decision to bring them down, the decision to actually execute them looks like all Henry. Because this doesn't happen for another year, until June 1510. Without wanting to be unfair, it just looks a little like Henry got bored with being hammered by petitions, whether from Emps or Dud, or indeed from their previous victims seeking justice. And so one day he says something along the lines of, Will nobody rid me of this turbulent distraction from having a good time? And a death warrant was signed up, and Emps and Dud were doomed. Essentially, there is this question about whether Henry became cruel or was always cruel. Emps and Dud's execution suggests to me that it was always there and how much do people genuinely change. But that's probably going into other areas I shouldn't be getting into right now, if ever. It couldn't have been Margaret, because by then Margaret was dead. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com I feel we should say goodbye to Margaret Beaufort. After all, she's been with us for a while. Bishop John Fisher, her confessor, was very busy that year. It was he that carried out Henry VII's funeral oration, and it was he that a mere six weeks later did the same for Henry's mother. There was a suspicion of equivocation in his words about Henry at the funeral speech. There were none for Margaret. Fisher painted a woman of strong devotion and active in doing good works. He described the moral force of her lordship Interestingly, he specifically mentioned that she came down hard on any suspicion of faction emerging in her or her son's household. Interesting, just a chance that this came as the hydra-headed faction monster was rearing its many heads within the new king's regime. But look, what a life, eh? Against all reason, I continue to think she was probably as irritating as words can wield the matter on little evidence than the review we saw about her in Elizabeth of York. But put that to one side, Margaret Beaufort sure saw interesting times and proved her worth within it. A mother at 13, that's an extraordinary challenge to overcome, whatever followed. In addition to her piety, she was politically astute, iron-willed in her determination to see her son come to the throne, and despite enormous distractions and twists and turns of policy, the fact that Henry came to the throne owes a vast amount to her. As Queen Mother, she was constantly involved with Henry. In all likelihood, she was a constant support to a man who was not keen on relying on others for help. To have his intelligent and astute mother available to help work problems through must have been an enormous advantage to him. Plus, Margaret was a great supporter of the... She took a small college established by a parish priest in Cambridge called God's House and turned it into Christ's College. So, get out your hankies, flutter them in the air and let us bid goodbye to a formidable star in the political firmament and the passing of an era. Tutty bye, Mags.
Meanwhile, it might be interesting to nip down the road and see how Catherine of Aragon is getting on too. We left her some time ago, the poor lamb swinging gently in the breeze where she'd been hung by her loving father and her father-in-law, and indeed by the obedient Prince Henry who had repudiated his marriage to her two years before. Well, when Henry VII died, Catherine's main Spanish adviser in London, Fuensalida, really thought it was going to make no difference whatsoever to her course. Essentially, she was stuffed. And that was that. Catherine was not so miserable. She was friends with Mary, Henry's sister. Her lady-in-waiting, Inez, was courting Mountjoy at the time, so news could travel to and from Prince Henry and Catherine's courts. She had high hopes that this new prince would indeed hop onto a white charger. So, five days after Henry VII died, Fuensalida was surprised to receive a summons to the council, and darn me if he wasn't told that Henry thought the dowry was a mere trifle and nothing, and it was time for him and Catherine to get it on. Good Lord, Fuensalida's jaw was on the floor particularly since there had been talk that the Archbishop of Canterbury, William Wareham, had serious doubts about the validity of the marriage. Wareham, who of course ought to know, was not convinced that the papal dispensation that Henry VII had already got for Henry and his marriage to Catherine really covered the matter of Henry being able to marry his brother's widow, which is kind of spooky in terms of later events. But it was probably Henry, rather than the council, who overruled all these objections, with a wave of his hand. Henry was keen to brush everything out of the way and get on with the marriage, so a complete turnaround. You might ask why. Ask me why. Great, thanks. Well, who knows the right answer, but we should speculate, should we not? After all, what is life without a spot of mind to speculation? Henry himself maintained that it was his father, that on his deathbed, Henry VII had told his son to marry Catherine. And that's not impossible... Anyone who felt guilty enough to order 10,000 masses for his soul was capable of feeling guilty about what he'd done to his daughter-in-law. But other interpretations are available. The emotional one said that here was a good-looking woman, older than Henry, but most certainly not old, with whom Henry had ridden through the streets of London to his brother's wedding. He could easily have been carrying a flame for her, couldn't he? And actually later, I think, Henry even said that he always married for love. I know, it's a bit of a simple explanation, but surely possible. After all, for the first ten years or so of their marriage, they were to be pretty happy and successful. If you want a more statesman-like answer, well, we know that Henry was very eager indeed to have a hack at the ancestral enemy, France. So what better idea than to find yourself an ally to help you out? And Spain was definitely a good option for help against France. So, plenty of good reasons then. The actual marriage took place in a small private ceremony at the palace at Greenwich before the end of June. The pyrotechnics would be reserved for the coronation, where both king and queen would be crowned. Before the coronation went ahead, there was still time to make sure the rest of the dowry was paid by the wily Ferdinand, which, slightly surprisingly actually, it was. Ferdinand of Aragon appeared to be slipping. Living up to promises and commitments was by and large not his style and it certainly wasn't going to be something he was going to continue with. Ferdinand would get his money worth from this marriage and make Henry look like a complete Charlie before all was said and done. The coronation was to be held on the 24th of June 1509 and as London, filled with the great and the good to take part in the biggest event for years, 
So Henry held his first great council. One constant feature of Henry's reign, as I said, is who was driving the bus, Henry or his ministers. Another feature is the arrival of faction. Now, David Stark is a historian who seems to have made a study of factions in Henry's reign his very own, and I commend his delightfully short book, Henry VIII, Personalities and Politics, to you to read. David Starkey is a hoot. Rather un-PC, it has to be said. Maybe should regret some of the things he comes out with, but he's a marvellously engaging historian. Now, if we start with Henry VII, you cannot imagine, can you, factions at the court of Henry VII? I mean, you might imagine that there are groups of courtiers getting together and resenting other groups, I suppose, but it's difficult to imagine why you'd bother. Because everyone knew there was absolutely no point in forming a faction because the king would make his own mind up anyway. Henry VII wasn't really open to being influenced and manipulated. In addition to which, you knew jolly well that Henry would make up his own mind with his close counsellors behind the door of the privy chamber. As far as Henry VII was concerned, the nobility were there to be kept in line and managed and to be consulted just as little as he could get away with. And sometimes they were there to stand around at tournaments looking pretty. Real work was done by Henry and his bureaucrats. This changes with Henry VIII... Historians argue about whether there is any real evidence that Henry was in fact open to manipulation. But one of them, I think it might be Starkey again, cuts this Gordian's knot by pointing out that it's a bit irrelevant, since Henry's courtiers clearly believed that he could be manipulated and strenuously bust many guts to do so. Faction becomes a daily part of courtly life, partly because Henry was thought to be open to influence but also because, unlike his dad, Henry was a passionate believer in the role of the nobility. He'd already shown this as a boy, surrounding himself with his noble friends. His idolisation of Henry V meant that he would aspire to gather his nobility around him and lead them to war and glory in the name of honour and the way of chivalry. Suddenly, the nobility were back, at court, with a function. Now, this, in fact, was the job of a courtier, his very raison d'etre. We referred to Baldassare Castiglione and the art of the courtier. That book was a runaway success at the time. It described how a courtier should manage himself. It drew on the tradition of Cicero and the classical tradition of oratory. As one day we'll discuss, Cicero did not advise calling a spade a spade. The phrase, I do like X, you really know where you are with him, was not one that would ever have passed Cicero's lips with approval. As far as Cicero was concerned... You presented yourself the way you wanted to be seen, not how you actually were. To oratory, then, Castiglione added the social skills of the knight and the gentleman. And the purpose of the courtier was really very simple. It was to win favour. You might think there are lots of people from whom the courtier might wish to win favour. Are there courtiers to gain influence, for example? Nah, waste of time. Or maybe you might like to do that, but the courtier must never forget that the only person that really mattered was the prince. Here goes a quote from him. The end of the perfect courtier is, by means of the accomplishments available to him by these gentlemen, so to win for himself the mind and flavour of the prince he serves, that he can and always will tell him the truth about all he needs to know without fear or risk of displeasing him. So the point of all this, he's saying, was to build a position of such trust and favour that you could tell your boss what he really needed to know. Or maybe, as the Quakers coined the phrase, speaking truth to power. 
This was never to be easy as far as Henry was concerned. He tended to take offence, and everyone knew that the offence of princes was dangerous. The skills and agonies of the courtier were not new in Tudor times, and with all the fuss about the Tudor court that goes on, it's easy to forget that. Courtiers had been sucking up to kings for centuries and hating every minute of it in the way, but the context was now rather different. Once it had largely been about service, then, as the Paston letters demonstrated so clearly, it was essential to protect yourself from land grabs and legal challenges from other lords as well. By Tudor times, as we've seen, the importance of royal patronage was now absolutely critical, and all was centred at court. There were a limited number of jobs available, and you had to compete hard if you were going to win a reasonable position. Equally, there was now more competition, or there was more competition for the nobility, at least. I mean, there they'd been, the medieval nobility, sitting pretty. The world was collectively their lobster. Medieval politics was essentially the story of the relationship between the king and his nobility. And then these other parvenus and a reviste started to arrive, under Edward IV and onward, filling up those non-political jobs and getting close to the boss. And now here they are at court with a king who will listen to the sons of butchers for crying out loud. Not just use them to implement his will and do his bidding, but to influence policy as well. They were now becoming part of the political world too. Remember that successive kings had begun to develop a direct relationship with the gentry in the regions, particularly through the job of Justice of the Peace, JP, but also by constant pressure on the affinities of the magnates. So slowly, the centre of power had become more and more court-centred. Building those purely regional power bases has not disappeared. Perses will always try to be kings in the north. But it's just not so possible now. The king is there as well. Nobles were gradually giving up this big regional affinity idea, the idea of paying a huge network of clients, because there was simply no point. The king is there too. And so more and more... Power is centred at court. So, the summary of this. Number one, the court has become the centre of patronage and the centre of political power. Number two, the job of the courtier is to develop your skills and accomplishments to win the favour of your prince, the king's grace, as it might have been called in England. Number three, once you have such grace, the courtier should use that relationship to tell the prince what he needs to know though that might also include landing yourself a nice job or an office or something like that, just along the way. We spoke last week of some controversies of Henry's reign, who was driving the bus, was the Reformation top-down or bottom-up or a combination of both. So here's another one. What happens to the nobility as a result of Henry's reign? That nice, comfortable medieval world of the king and his magnates determining policy and then the magnates managing the regions on the king's behalf is gone. The new politics of the court does not suit the traditional worldview of the nobility. And one argument is that the nobility simply disappears from politics and power to become influential purely locally and regionally. Thus we'll spend our time over the next few decades talking about the likes of Wolsey and Cromwell, the very definition of the new politics, rather than the likes of Mowbrays and Bahoons and the Warrens, all those families we used to talk about when men were men and women were women and small furry creatures and all that sort of thing. But actually, while they have competition in the nobility and while the primacy of these new figures tends to obscure the nobility, actually Henry VIII enthusiastically brings nobles back to court. He really is not his father's son. His companions are noble. 
He wants to emulate Henry V, as we said, and that means sitting in council with his nobles, going to war with his nobles. And with the return of nobles to active political life, with the king open to suggestion and manipulation, or at least believed to be so, court becomes faction in a way we've not seen since Henry VI. Edward IV ruled his court with an iron hand, so did Henry VII. David Starkey takes the trouble to explain what faction means. I think we know, but it leads to a rather fun quote or two. The joke is that your own faction, the faction you belong to, is never, of course, anything as sordid as something that could be described as a faction. Oh no, the group you belong to is much more like a modern political party, as in Edmund Burke's phrase. A body of men united for promoting by their joint endeavours the national interest, upon some particular principle in which they are all agreed. Sounds great, doesn't it? Clean, principled, I can smell the high clean air. This is politics in the word of the naked gun without utensils. Other faction, of course, is a selfish and unprincipled cabal, out to grab all the best jobs for purely personal gain. I exaggerate for effect, but you know what I mean. Faction is intrinsically adversarial. It is ridden with hatred and suspicion. In the words of the great philosopher Blondie, much mistrust Love's gone behind. Fine words. Faction is first used as a word in this sense in John Fisher's funeral speech for Margaret Beaufort, which we've referred to, in the context of telling everyone how good she had been at preventing such a thing. It is nonetheless interesting that it should start with Henry VIII's reign. One of the noble courtiers who will vie for Henry's favour is a highly strung, restless and outspoken poet, diplomat, warrior and writer called Sir Francis Bryan who would become known as the Vicar of Hell, which is interesting. Sir Francis Bryan echoed Castiglione's words when he wrote, Who knows how great a grace in writing is to counsel man the right? He also described Henry's court and its constant, quote, malice and displeasures. This is the world in which we now often will be working. Maybe that's why we like Henry VIII so much. We do like a bit of malice and displeasure, do we not? Anyway, faction will raise its ugly head right from the start, from Henry's very first council, which we will hear about in the next episode. This will in fact be in two weeks' time. And meantime, thank you very much for listening, everybody. Thanks for all your comments on iTunes, Facebook, website, and all that sort of thing. Um, And have a great fortnight. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.